podcast where we seek to simplify big ideas on faith, life, and leadership by having conversations with those who know stuff to help simplify things for the rest of us. Well, welcome to episode number 26 of our podcast. My name is Skylar Elmer. I'm your host, and I hope that this conversation today will give you the encouragement you need to make a greater impact in your life. Today, my guest with me is a major biblical scholar. He has authored and contributed to over 60 books, including, get this, a commentary on every book in the New Testament, which is quite a remarkable accomplishment given the fact that many Christians have yet to read through the entire New Testament. Uh, He is the Amos Professor of New Testament for doctoral studies at Asbury Theological Seminary and is considered to be one of the top evangelical scholars in the world today. My guest with me is Dr. Ben Witherington, and with such a rich knowledge of scripture and a major contributor to evangelical theology, I asked him to come onto our podcast and have a conversation about one of the books that he wrote addressing some of the issues he sees within evangelical theology uh, over his years of experience. And, and it is a fresh, it is a convicting and surprisingly refreshing critique for Christians in the West, especially here in North America. It is a true Bible nerd's joy and privilege to have Ben on our podcast. So let's just go ahead and jump into my conversation with Ben. Well, I am uh, I am tremendously honored to have uh, Dr. Ben Witherington on our podcast. Ben, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, Ben, um, I assume if anybody is kind of a Bible nerd in in Bible college or has any has, has read any anything scholarship wise, they know who you are, and they've probably read some of your your books um, for uh, class or, or something like I I have. Um, but would you do us a favor and just kind of introduce you know who you are, uh, what do you do, and maybe a little bit about what got you into biblical scholarship. Sure. Well, I am in my almost 40th year of teaching biblical studies, both at the college level, but primarily at the seminary and uh, postgraduate level. And I've taught in a variety of places. I've taught at High Point College. I've taught at Duke Divinity School. I've taught at Vanderbilt Divinity School. I've taught at uh, Ashland Theological Seminary, Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Okay. And for the last 25 years, I've been at Asbury Theological Seminary. And what um, what drew you into scholarship? Well, I mean, I grew up in the church. Okay. Uh, my mother says my first two words were John Wesley. I grew up in the <laughs> I'm kind of doubting that, but you know. So I've always been involved in the church. I was a uh, Methodist Youth Fellowship leader. Uh, when I went to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, go Tar Heels, um, I was involved in InterVarsity there. And, and that's the point in time when I really began to think about pursuing biblical studies seriously. I took some wonderful Bible classes at Carolina by a uh, professor who had come from Princeton, who was a world-class lecturer, okay. as well as a very devout Christian person. And I mean, the story is that over 5,000 people 
went into the ministry from his teaching ministry at Carolina. Oh, wow. In the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I think that's probably true. So I, after I did uh, my degrees at the University of North Carolina, I went to Gordon-Conwell and I did an MDiv degree because at that point I thought, well, I like both preaching and teaching. I could go either way with this. So I, I did an MDiv degree preparing for pastoral ministry, but I also took 13 exegesis classes from really good professors at Gordon-Conwell, like Gordon Fee and David oh, Scholler, Randy Michaels, Andrew Lincoln. I mean, these were, they had a world-class New Testament faculty at that point in time. And uh, that really prepared me well. So then I, I decided I'd, I'd like to, and felt led to go on and do doctoral work. So I went to England. I did my PhD at the University of Durham, not to be confused with Duke in Durham, North Carolina, and uh, had a great time. I mean, I studied with probably the world's leading Methodist New Testament scholar at the time, C.K. Barrett, and okay. I, I studied with C.E.B. Cranfield, T.H.L. Parker in Calvin Studies, John Rogerson in Old Testament and the Qumran Scrolls. So, I mean, it was an embarrassment of riches. I, I have had a very rich education in biblical studies. And then I came back to North Carolina and I pastored four churches at once while teaching part-time at Duke. Oh my. I, I, would just, I would just say, don't try this at home. <laughs> it was way too much. But, uh, but it, it was a lot of fun. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, I'm one of those rare persons that really hasn't applied for a teaching post at a college or seminary. Um, they came after me. Hmm. And part of the reason for that was that my dissertation on women in the New Testament sort of, as you folks would say, blew up. Okay. And what I mean by that is it one book became two books, became three books, and it became the standard reference book on that particular issue. And after that, publishers were coming after me to write all kinds of things and do all kinds of things. And uh, so I just kept writing and uh, publishing. And in my tradition, which is a, a conservative or more evangelical Methodism, Nobody had done what Calvin did, which was write a commentary on every book of the New Testament. Hmm. So I sort of set out to do that and got that done. And then I started working on theologies, a New Testament theology called the, uh, the Indelible Image, a biblical theology which just came out two years ago. Um, you know, I, I, I've ended up writing monographs or commentaries over 60 books. And wow. so, you know, I feel like I've had a very blessed career of writing and, and uh, it's really taken me all over the world. I mean, I've taught all kinds of places. The only continent I've never taught on is actually South America, but oh, okay. everywhere else I, I've been there, done that and got the t-shirt or at least the coffee mug. And so, I mean, that's kind of the trajectory I've pursued. I mean, at this point, I'm playing with the house's money, you know, I'm just enjoying what I, I'm doing. And for the last, just over a decade, we've had PhD students in biblical studies here at Asbury. 
Mm -hmm. We launched uh, 12 years ago uh, a PhD in biblical studies. Okay. So I've been having fun with the brightest and the best who know six languages and this, that, and the other, you know, and uh, it's been a real good, fresh challenge instead of just teaching the same courses again and again. And I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So um, I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I intend to continue to do it. The Lord willing and the Creek don't rise <laughs> yeah. for, for years. Okay. So Ben, that's incredible. Um, if anybody is listening from South America, I'm sure Ben would love to go over there and uh, do a lecture. Um, ben, so you, you, you've authored um, over 60 books. Has there been a favorite for you to write? And is there one you're working on? Not really. I mean, I did, I actually did an English literature degree at Carolina. Okay. So the fun writing has been all these novels that have done really very well. I mean, my, my intervarsity novel, A Week in the Life of Corinth, yeah. about a week of Paul's trial, it really has gone into like 10 editions and it's been used as an auxiliary te textbook and Corinthians courses and this, that, and the other. I've thoroughly enjoyed just using my English literature skills to do that. In terms of just fun, that's been a lot of fun. The, the most recent one I did was Paul of Arabia, talking mm. about the years of Paul when he went to Arabia, which is actually Petra. And so, um, you know, that's been the fun part. The other part is in, enjoyable, but lots of hard slogging, lots of research. Yeah lots of reading until your eyeballs fall out, you know, <laughs> lots of writing. And, and uh, you know, I'm one of those persons that finds out what he really thinks about something by writing it. Oh, right? yeah. I'm, I'm not an introspective person. I don't just sit there and mull things over for days and then write something. No, I, I, have, to, uh, I have to either verbalize it or write it down. And then, then my thoughts uh, become clear, at least to me they do. So, I mean, that's, that's been my process. I mean, a lot of people have asked me how in the world did you write all the stuff that you write? But I've been a writer since I was a child, actually. I mean, I was published before I got out of high school. Some of my poetry really? was published. Yeah. And then I wrote for the Daily Tar Heel, the student newspaper at Carolina as well. And then at Gordon Conwell, I wrote for their magazine as well. And so I've always been a writer. That's, mm -hmm. that's always been the way I actually learn. I, I learn not just by reading, but also by writing. And so that's just part of my DNA, really. That's fun. That's a lot of fun. So Ben, you, um, you wrote a book, um, you wrote a lot of books, um, but one of the books that you wrote, uh, it was 16 years ago and it was recently revised and released last year uh, called The Problem, I have the old version, but it's called The Problem of Evangelical Theology, Testing the Exegetical Foundation of Calvinism, Dispensationalism, Wesleyanism, and Pentecostalism. Um, and at first glance, um, when, you, when you read the title of the book, it sounds kind of anti-evangelical, um, but that is not at all the case. Um, your book shows a, a very deep appreciation for uh, the evangelical heritage, and it's actually one of the reasons why you wrote the book. And so um, to kick things off, what is evangelicalism and why specifically did you write this book? 
Well, unfortunately, because of partisan politics, the term evangelical has sort of gotten an odorous name mm. for certain sort of contentious political issues. And that's really unfortunate because yeah. of course the evangel is just the gospel. So evangelical theology is basically a Protestant form of Orthodox theology. That's all it really is. And it's part of the heritage of the Reformation, both the Lutheran yeah. and the Geneva Reformation, and then the Wesleyan Reformation in England. And, and all Protestant denominations have come out of that Reformation. And of course, the thing that most characterizes evangelical theology is a very high view of scripture and its inspiration and authority and a belief that the Bible is the ultimate litmus test for theology in general. And, and I don't disagree with that. I think that's right. It, it should be the final authority. It's, mm. it's good to learn from human traditions of various sorts. That's all good. But the truth of the matter is that it needs to meet the test of whether the scriptures teach this or not. And, and that's, you know, to me, that's the big deal. That's the real issue. Um, and so why did I write this book? Well, there are a variety of reasons. Uh, one of which was that I had discovered something. And what I had discovered was that the more you look into the various kinds of evangelical conservative Protestant theology, the more you discover that whenever a particular branch of evangelicalism has tried to say something distinctive, mm. like, for example, dispensational theology coming up with the notion of a rapture, whether pre-tribulation or sometime else, right? Whenever they've tried to say, clear their throat and say something distinctive, that the rest of Orthodox theology wouldn't say, that happens to be the exegetically weakest part of their argument. Hmm. Now, that's really interesting. And I found that to be true, not just of dispensationalism, but of Calvinism, Pentecostalism, Wesleyanism. I mean, all of the major branches, whether they're more Calvinistic and Reformed or they're more Arminian and not, uh, all of them, all of them are not perfect theologies. Yeah. And when they've tried to sort of go for the gusto and, and hit a home run with saying something distinctive, well, that's usually where they took a left turn and got off course. Hmm. And so uh, I was concerned about, first of all, having a reasonable dialogue and discourse with my fellow evangelicals and saying, well, what about this, you know? Uh, this doesn't seem to meet the test of scripture. Um, and, and so that's kind of what this book is doing. It's, it's evaluating the weak points in evangelical theology and saying, we have so much in common. And in fact, we have many things in common with Catholicism and orthodoxy as well. Uh, we should mainly stick to the things that we have in common because it's clear they're far more scriptural. Yeah. And uh, so it's, it's kind of a call to ecumenism. Let's get our act together because of course, Protestants are notoriously 
divisive. There's mm. only, there's over, there's several hundred Protestant denominations in America. How many Catholic denominations are there in America? One. <laughs> yeah. What's wrong with this picture? Okay. How come Protestants can't get their act together? And, and really be the united body of Christ upholding evangelical theology. Mm, well, wow. that's a concern of mine. I, 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 really, I really resonate with that concern. Even within one town, more conservative Protestants can't get together and share the Lord's Supper together and have revivals together and stuff. I wow. mean, it's, it's, it's just not right. It, uh, the body of Christ is not supposed to be that divided, frankly. So, you know, that was part of my deeper concern in writing this particular book. Mm. Man, that's good. You know, and, you, you know, um, you know, everybody gets an equal, equal plate of uh, evaluation, uh, in a sense, and uh, <laughs> criticism, and we all get to be offended, you know, <laughs> with our theology, uh, in, in a sense, yeah, but I mean, not, not in a bad way. How no, I'm an equal, equal opportunity critiquer. <laughs> different forms of evangelical theology. So what has been the general um, uh, reaction that you've gotten? Has, has it been receptive? Um, has people, have people really pushed, pushed against it? Well, it depends on how partisan they are. Mm, okay. you know, I mean, if you've drunk nothing but the Calvinistic Kool-Aid, <laughs> you're not going to like the critique I offer of mm, this okay. saying to you here and here and here. This is not very biblical, and it doesn't account for these texts. You have to do all kinds of exegetical tap dances and gymnastics to get around these biblical texts. What's wrong with this picture? I mean, or and the same with Pentecostalism. I mean, for example, I'll give you an example. There is no evidence at all that speaking in tongues is the ultimate litmus, litmus test of whether you're a spirit-filled Christian or not. It's a legitimate spiritual gift, one among many, and it should not be seen as the litmus test of whether somebody is bona fide or yeah. a genuine Christian or not. And there are problems with all of these Protestant theologies, but apart from that, there's a lot of good things to be said about it. You know, I mean, God bless the Pentecostals for making us realize we need to have spiritual gifts and mm -hmm. we need to use them, right? God bless the Calvinists that we need to recognize God is, after all, almighty. He really yeah, yeah. is sovereign. We should be glorifying God. That, that's, that's good. That's certainly biblical, you know, and I could just keep going. So the problem would be, why is it that since the cry of the Reformation was semper reformanda, always reforming, mm -hmm. how come somehow we've stopped reforming? How come we aren't still processing and trying to perfect our various traditions in a more biblical way, in a way that would honor God and serve the people? And so in some ways I'm calling for, let's keep the Reformation going. Hmm. Oh, wow, that's very good. So, and, and you've touched on, um, and, I, and I, I love that, just kind of a, a refocusing, a reframing of how we should approach doing theology, thinking about uh, the Bible and, 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 and just moving forward with that same, that same motivation of, you know, constant reformation and upholding scripture's authority. 
Um, you you touched on uh, in, in the in the in, in your book um, four big um, evangelical families, uh, traditions, groups. Um, I would love for you just to kind of walk through that, share a little bit about um, the history. Where do these come from? Um, what are the big problems you see, and what's the Bible's response? We're talking about people in the pews, pastors, schools, and seminary professors. I got news for you. They are not the majority. They are certainly often the loudest horn okay. out on the street. But they are not, I mean, if you count all the Pentecostals and Methodists and Salvation Army and Nazarenes and Wesleyans and Quakers and Mennonites, I could keep going. They way outnumber the Reformed hmm. folk. It's just that in the last especially 30 years, Reformed theology has had a sort of renaissance on college campuses and elsewhere. And partly this is because of the things that have been going on in our culture. Um, you know, the, the more you have a crisis, the more you like the idea of eternal security, once mm -hmm. saved, always saved, right? And so uh, a large part of our culture has been, especially younger generations, has been looking for theological comfort food, like the idea of eternal security. I think there's no question about that. It's also why many people in the 20th and into the 21st century embrace dispensationalism. They would like to get out of here. They were saying, Scotty, beam me up, right? Because there are so many things going wrong in the culture. It's become more violent. It's become less Christian. It's become more hostile in various ways. Um, you know, I understand why these theologies have become increasingly popular over the last 30 years as we move into a post-Christian era, not merely in Europe, but also in North America as well. Mm. And so, I mean, that's part of the sociology of what's happening, it seems to me. And so um, that, that's, that's part of the larger picture when we consider all these things. Now, first of all, the Reformation really began with Martin Luther and Melanchthon. It didn't begin with Calvinism. It began with what we would call today Lutheranism. Mm, okay. And who was Martin Luther? Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. So in one sense, he was a Calvinist before Calvin mm. because Augustine is the one who really started throwing out there this whole notion of yeah. everything predestined and, you know, we need to have this really rigid theology of original sin. So the only way you could possibly be saved is if God, before the foundation of the universe, burst determined to save you, and otherwise it would just not happen at all. Um, Honestly, these theologies and the reaction to them go back to Augustine. So you really sort of have to start with Augustine. And the thing that's odd about that is that in his own day, Augustine was the odd man out. And uh. what I mean by that is if you read the theology of the second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and et cetera centuries, what you discover is that um, people like Origen or Justin Martyr, or Ignatius of Antioch, 
or certainly John Chrysostom, maybe the greatest of the Pauline scholars of his whole era, they weren't Calvinists. They weren't a gut. They were not Augustinians either, yeah. right? So since the beginning of church history, including in the biblical period, not everybody sounded like John Calvin. That it was a voice that became prominent with Augustine. And then Luther, being an Augustinian monk, picked up that ball and ran off the playing field with it. In fact, <laughs> I mean, in some ways, Luther was more Augustinian than Calvin. And what I mean by that is Luther really didn't have any viable theology of secondary causes. I mean, if you read his treatise called The Bondage of the Will, I mean, everything is directly ordained by God, get over with it, get over it. They're not secondary causes that God hasn't already predestined to happen. Hmm. Even the devil is called by Luther, God's devil. He's doing God's bidding, you know? And so, I mean, that creates enormous problems in regard to the whole issue of evil. Is God the author of evil? Calvin actually had a much more nuanced position on these kind of issues, and he very much affirmed the idea of secondary causes. God should not be credited with our sin, for example, okay? Um, and Calvin had a much more robust theology of the Holy Spirit. My favorite part of Calvin's Institutes is his third part where he really talks about the Holy Spirit. Luther basically had almost no theology of sanctification. I mean, it was justification oh. by grace plus faith plus nothing, right? <laughs> he, he, he believed that even Christians were still in the bondage to sin. He believed... Mm that Romans 7 was a description of the normal Christian life. We struggle, we know better, but we can't do better. God bless. I mean, that's even in the Lutheran confession. I've fallen and I can't get up. Forgive me, God. Hmm. Boy, that, I'm sorry, but where I come from, that dog just will not hunt. <laughs> because the New Testament over and over again holds us responsible for our own behavior. For example... Paul says, no temptation has overcome you, Corinthians, that is not common to humanity, such that with the temptation, God has already provided an adequate means of escape. Now, that doesn't sound like to me, oh, it's inevitable. I'm in the bondage of sin. You know, I can resist anything but temptation. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and so, you know, I, I, we start with Luther then we have the Geneva uh, Reformation with Calvin and, and uh, some of his followers, Beza and some of these other ones. And it was this Calvinistic theology that really generated the Puritans in England. But that really only partly happened because of John Knox, the real founder of Presbyterianism in Edinburgh, right? Uh, so one of the forms of Protestantism that sort of took root in the United Kingdom, both in Scotland and in England, was a form of Calvinism, whether you're talking about the Puritans or the straight-up Presbyterians. And, and what's really interesting is that, you know, church people know so little about this history. 
Yeah. That they just don't even understand what was going on. I mean, for example, who was on the Mayflower? Well, it wasn't Lutherans. It was Puritans and Pilgrims. What Bible did they bring to America? It was not the King James Bible. It was the Geneva Bible. Mm, oh. Right? So the King James Bible did not jump off the boat in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and then suddenly become the, the favorite of all Protestants. That's a much later development, actually. So, I mean, so much of this history, most Christians just don't know. So you had Lutheranism, you had Calvinism, but at the same time as Luther was going, you have the beginning of the Baptist movement. People mm -hmm. called Anabaptists and Baptists. And this ultimately spun off uh, the Amish, <laughs> the Mennonites, various others as well, part of the German Reformation altogether. And that's a part that, again, many Protestants don't know anything about. Yeah. But it was certainly part of the Reformation. Now, what was the reaction in England to all of this? Well, Anglicanism, which is the only church that was founded by a king, it was founded by King Henry VIII, hmm. because he wanted to keep marrying women that the Pope said he couldn't marry. So he founded his own church <laughs> and anathematized the Pope. That's the origin of Anglicanism right there, the king. Um, that group within Anglicanism included people who were both Calvinists and Arminians. There were two mm. traditions, and, and the church didn't insist on one of those two. Okay. Westminster Confession of Faith was clearly a far more Calvinistic statement, but there were plenty of ministers, bishops, and even archbishops who were far more like John Wesley than they were like John Calvin in regard to their theological bent. So what we have is this Protestant theology gestating in Europe and then reincarnating itself in America through missionaries of various kinds, you know, all these different Protestant kinds of missionaries that came to the United States. John Wesley went to Georgia with his brother Charles to set up Methodist societies in Georgia. Hmm. And, and George Whitfield, maybe the most famous preacher of the 18th century, went all up and down the Eastern seaboard. He was a more Calvinistic Methodist. See, that's an interesting thing. I mean, Methodism had as at its origins both Calvinistic Methodists and Arminian Methodists as hmm. well in the same church. That was really interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the background of how we got all these different Protestant groups in America. America is an immigrant nation. And we immigrated all kinds of Protestant religion as well as Catholicism as well. I mean, the original religions of the 13 colonies were what we would call Episcopalianism and Catholicism. I mean, Maryland is named after the Virgin Mary. Hmm. Okay, yeah. we, we, have, we have whole states that were largely Catholic. We have other whole states that were largely Protestant. I mean, that's kind of the way it went. And Massachusetts was the birthplace of Congregationalism. And, wow. uh, you know, I mean, so religion was an essential part of the birth of America and the growth of America. 
what many Americans also don't know is that the real movers and shakers that set up our modern democracy, by which I mean people like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin, and of course, George Washington, though he was just mainly a military hero. I mean, those folks could not even join most evangelical churches today. Hmm. Thomas Jefferson yeah. produced an edited version of the New Testament, which was just boiling boiled down to the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount plus some sprinkles, right? Yeah. I mean, he was absolutely not somebody who could have joined the evangelical society in any way. Uh, John Adams was a deist. That is, he believed there really was a God, but let's uh, eliminate the miracles from the biblical tradition. Okay, they were not born again Christians in the modern Protestant sense. And the way they set up our society was they didn't want a state religion like you have in Europe. Mm. So they, they endorsed the idea that everybody should be persuaded in their own mind and practice their own religion. But there's nothing in the Constitution about a separation of church and state. Nothing. Mm. Nothing at all. It, that's not, it's not in the Constitution. It's not in the Bill of Rights. It's not in the Declaration of Independence. What the idea was, was let's codify pluralism. Different strokes for different folks in regard to their religions. And this is how we're going to avoid religious wars and religious oh, wow. takeovers and all that sort of stuff. So the, the real charter of America owes more to John Locke than it owes to John Calvin or John. Wow. I mean, wow. that's, that's the real truth. Uh, now, were there many devout Christians at the founding of our country? Yes. Sam Adams of beer fame. He was a flaming evangelist. No question. There were Jonathan Edwards who helped found Princeton. He was absolutely a, a hyper-Orthodox Calvinist. No question. Roger Williams, who founded Rhode Island, helped found Rhode Island. He was a very devout Protestant. There were plenty of those, mm. but there were lots of other people. And those really religious ones were not the chief shapers of our founding documents or the way our democracy was going. I mean, after all, How think about it. Democracy is not in the Bible. <laughs> it's kingdoms. And kings, hello. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kingdom of God is about a kingdom, right? And I don't mean the magic kingdom. <laughs> I mean the kingdom of God. And so many of the most important ideas that we take for granted as Americans are something quite apart from the essence of our orthodoxy as devout Christian persons. And we should have realized that from the beginning. Um, and so here's another thing about this. When you really evaluate not only our culture, but also our religion, and especially Protestantism and its attempt to be fully biblical, well, the truth of the matter is that what has happened, especially in the 20th century, is that the civic religion has become more prominent than the biblical religion. Mm or they have just been blended together. 
God bless America. God bless our standard of living. We all know that Jesus is in favor of democracy. Hallelujah. Actually, not so much. Um, you know, and so my concern with this specific book, The Problem with Evangelical Theology, is, okay, let's sort out our theology first. Then we'll deal with the culture wars after that. Yeah. You know? but, but we need to be, the thing is, no fake news. Mm. We need to be honest about our whole history. We need to be honest about it. Uh, I mean, Ben Franklin was absolutely not a Christian mm. at all. Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, not yeah. a Christian, right? They accepted certain Christian principles, but they were hardly William Penn of Pennsylvania, the famous Quaker. I mean, the Quakers, leading up to the American Revolution, didn't want us to fight anybody. Mm. They were pacifists, right? <laughs> they were pacifists. So, you know, we have this varied religious heritage, and we have these varied theological traditions, and it would be good at this point, as we really ease into a post-Christian era, if evangelicals could get their act together, yeah, yeah. really affirm that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, and let's just reason together and where we have to agree to disagree, okay, but we're not going to cast dispersions on each other as if, okay, he's an 85% Christian and this one's only 15%. No, we'll leave that in God's hands because none of us have a perfect theology. Wow. Uh, that was, um, that was like drinking from a, a fire hose, Ben. That was, <laughs> that was a deep dive. I didn't anticipate that. You can tell I care about these things. Yeah, no, and I mean you've, I mean you're not somebody who's well invested in the realm of theology, but in in scholarship, but you also are very invested in, you know, history and and where everything is the origin of of so much um, of where these theological traditions come from, why they're so influential, and that's so good. It's so good to be aware of that in you know our our heritage and traditions beyond <laughs> these movements. I like to say a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. Yeah. So I want to do yeah. biblical interpretation on the base of its original contexts and understand its original meaning because that's the meaning that God inspired in the text. And then I'm going to ask the secondary questions about modern application after the fact. Yeah. Tell me first what it really means. And then I'll deal with the issue of how is it applicable today in various settings in various ways. Because we are a long way away from the biblical era. We're not Middle Eastern persons. We don't speak Hebrew. We don't speak yeah. Aramaic. We don't speak Greek, unless, of course, you live in Greece. But even modern Greek yeah. is not the same as ancient Greek. I mean, it really isn't. I can read the signs but the pronunciations are all different. For, yeah, yeah. for example, the word Eucharistio, I uh, give thanks. In, um, in modern Greek, it's pronounced Eferisto. <laughs> they were hardly recognizable. When you say thank you, you say Eferisto to the waiter in Athens. You know? So we are far removed from biblical culture. 
And as a result of that, we need to, first of all, increase our level of biblical literacy, because unfortunately, in my lifetime, despite my best efforts, our culture is becoming increasingly biblically illiterate. Mm, yeah, wow. You know, I mean, and that, that's just the truth. Uh, we know less and less Bible. You know, I, I like, with my master's level entry students in New Testament intro, I like to come into class on one of the first days and say, okay, everybody open your Bibles and turn to the book of Hezekiah. And then I just watch what happens. <laughs> yeah. Many of them are madly thumbing through, thinking it must be somewhere in the Old Testament. Well, of course, there is no book of Hezekiah. That already tells me mm. they've got a long way to go before they know something about the Bible. Mm. Wow. And that's, and that's master's level, you know? <laughs> it is. So. That's frightening. <laughs> yeah, I have to. I have to try that one one Sunday when I'm preaching. Um, see see what the reaction is. Um, so okay, there's all kinds of, and we probably won't have time to dive into all of the, you know, the I guess the four camps that you address. Um, but talk to me a little bit. Um, uh, a little bit. I mean, you're you're a scholar with a pastor's heart for the church. Um, uh, you had said before we hit record that, um, or no, it was actually when we were recording that you were a pastor of uh, four different churches at the same time. Um, yeah. In in your writing, I mean, your your pastoral sensitivity it comes across. Um, but what can the church do practically to safeguard itself from um, future theological errors? Well, an excellent question. And the first thing I would say is you've got to stop getting rid of Sunday school mm. and making Bible study optional. You've got to stop front loading everything into the worship service. Mm. Worship okay. is of course crucial, very important in some ways, the most important thing. Okay. But discipleship is just as important. And unfortunately, what's happened between 1950 and now is the decline of the Sunday school movement mm. and even the decline of Bible study, even in conservative yeah. Protestant circles. And so, of course, of course, the church is increasingly biblically illiterate and they're getting their values, not so much from the Bible, but from the culture or the ethos that they live in, you know, and, and it's just not the same. It's just not the same. So I would hope that we would get increasing pastors who will not merely preach the Bible in a um, palatable way, sure. but really tease the mind into active thought, get people excited about getting into the word and then implementing discipleship programs of various sorts in various ways, whether it's in the home or in the church or online or through Zoom or whatever it takes, whatever it takes, we have to raise the level of biblical literacy in the church. And uh, God help us if we don't do that. Mm. Because we, we will have the form of religion, as John Wesley would say, without its power. Wow. Uh, if we if we don't have a revival of both word and spirit, mm. God help us. The church will continue to decline and not be much influence in the culture. It will be an afterthought. 
No kidding. No kidding. And I'm, I'm reading a little bit up on, um, you know, just kind of the progressive, um, progressive movement. And, uh, I mean, a lot of this is just, um, kind of an outgrowth of biblical illiteracy, you know, with, with people not knowing scripture, but equally being deeply, um, distraught of, you know, abuses and things like that have taken place. And, uh, and I mean, the, the church, you know, as the Old Testament says, judgment should start with the household of God. Mm. We should be the most accountable to God for upholding divine principles and divine ethics. Of course we should, right? Not just going with the flow of the culture, whichever way the wind blows. Right. right? Uh, and of course, the problem is, as go the pastors, so go the churches, and as go the churches, so go lay people, right? And, and, and that their assumptions are more formed by watching the news than by reading the good news. Yeah, yeah, very true. And this is this is just not good. Now, it's true that devout lay people may know something is badly wrong but they aren't able to articulate exactly what it is. Obviously, the pastors should be the arbiters of the word of God for them to raise their consciousness as to what really counts as Christian and what really isn't, both theologically and ethically. And, and that's, that's just critical. And frankly, what mainly we are getting in especially large Protestant churches is entertainment. Mm, wow. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's gospel light, less filling, tastes great. Mm. And, and I mean, that's true in the songs that you sing. I mean, how many, I don't have a problem with praise music as a form of music. I'm a musician. I've done everything from classical to rock and roll and everything in between, jazz, you name it. Okay, that's not the issue. The issue is what is the content, not what's the style of the music singing yippee yippee jesus 40 times <laughs> is not the same as singing when i survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died my richest gain i count but loss and mm. poor contempt on all my pride you know i mean the content of those songs matters and and so what we are doing is trivializing the sacred mm, wow we and we are insulting the native intelligence of our congregations. Guess what? They have brains. Yeah. You should be teasing their mind into active thought. Stop putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. Make their reach extend further than their grasp. Challenge them with ideas that make them think. Yeah. Of course. But of course, do it clearly in a way that's comprehensible. Okay, but but you know I you know so many sermons. I mean, how many times can you eat pablum and not remain a baby <laughs> yeah. in the faith? Wow. Uh, well, that's uh, been really challenging and um, a very fair critique. And so, looking at the church world, uh, I don't know if you can call it that. That's probably not an appropriate way to categorize that. But looking at um, ministry, churches, um, there's a concern with biblical literacy. Um, how about scholarship? Is there anything within biblical scholarship that has you excited or maybe uh, concerned about where things are heading? 
Well, let me just say that when I began this journey, BC, before cell phone, <laughs> back in the 70s, BC, before computer, before computer, remember handwriting? Okay. I had to take all my notes by hand with a pen and a notebook, right? Um, when I began this journey, there were probably only two world famous evangelical New Testament scholars. And both were in England. One was F.F. Bruce, the other was Howard Marshall. Okay. Oh, yeah. What has happened in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and on to now is an explosion of evangelicals doing doctoral work and becoming biblical scholars and having an increasing presence in the society of biblical literature, uh, not just in the evangelical theological society, but in the broader scope of the society of biblical literature, and in many cases, taking prominent roles, right? Hmm. I mean, two years ago, Bev Gaventa, New Testament scholar from Baylor, no less, hmm. was the president for the year of the Society of Biblical Literature. We've come a long way, baby. We, <laughs> there, are, there are now hundreds and thousands of evangelicals involved in the larger discussion of the Bible since we began way back yonder in the 60s and the 70s. And so that's a good trend. I'm happy with that. And that's going to continue. Now, we have at Asbury right now, we have 57 freaking biblical studies doctoral students wow. in all the New Testament. Some of them are going to be movers and shakers in churches, in cool. colleges, in seminaries, all over the world, because half of our students are foreign and half are domestic. We, we are very much a missional school. So. And so that's all very exciting. I'm excited about helping to train the next generation, okay? Not so exciting is all of the proliferation of all kinds of, of strange and sometimes interesting ways of interpreting the Bible through all kinds of modern lenses. So for example, post-colonialism, mm, well, what's okay. that? That's a reaction to European ways of interpreting the Bible from scholars from uh, South America, Africa, India. And some of that is good. I mean, obviously European ways of interpreting the Bible need to be critiqued. None of us are perfect, right? But a lot of post-colonialism is an attempt to rewrite history and rewrite how to properly interpret the Bible in order for their own traditions to somewhere fit on the map of all of that and be legitimized, be legitimized, okay? Um, some of those traditions um, are, are not helpful. I mean, we, we, we have today at the SBL uh, whole groups and seminars on alternate sexualities and the Bible, mm. okay? Um, I am not participating in those, right? So th there are trends that are encouraging and there are other trends that are not encouraging. And uh, it's, a, it's a mixed phenomenon, it's a mixed phenomenon. But I am thankful that the evangelical world is producing more and more really good scholars 
both men and women wanting to serve God in a way that's faithful to God and to God's word. And so I'm going to hang on to that as the hopeful trend in regard to these matters. It's awesome. And hopefully, you know, that kind of uh, helps assist with our culture, with biblical literacy. You know, the more genuine scholars in in, in the world, in universities, in, in churches, uh, can stimulate that excitement of study and beyond just kind of the surface level um, reading of a text that you can dive deep into scripture. Um, and, and I would really urge pastors to help their congregation learn how to do critical thinking. Yeah. Because, unfortunately, many Christians have swallowed all kinds of untruths and fake news and conspiracy theories and all sorts of garbage, which anybody who stands for the way, the truth, and the life should never have embraced. Mm, wow. and, and so we have truth decay in the church. Man, man. Ben, that, this has been really rich, and I, I am so grateful um, that you have taken time to talk talk with us, talk with me um, about this. This has been awesome. If um, Ben goes way more into depth on those, I know we, we brushed on Calvinism a little bit and some of the other areas, but um, fair critiques on, on all of these and, a, and a, fair, you know, a, a fair shake up, you know, to go back to our roots of being, you know, Orthodox Christians and the, the historical um, traditions of um, what, G, you know, who Jesus is, what, it, you know, he, he's done, um, you know, in the New Testament as well as um, from that point forward to, to uh, uh, carry the gospel um, through the church. So, um, ben, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk with us. It's been really good. My pleasure. It's good to be with you, and God bless you in your ministry. Well, that was a fascinating conversation. I, I mean, I wasn't going to say it in the interview, but I mean, there was so much history that I frankly was unaware of. I mean, his book, The Problem with Evangelical Theology, it is a great evaluation and critique on some of the families within the evangelical church it would be a worthwhile book to read and have on your shelf uh, to have an honest assessment of what we believe as well as a book to bring us back to the heart of our heritage, the authority of the Bible, and the need to constantly be reforming. Thank you, Ben, for making yourself available uh, to talk with us about your book. I will put um, some links into our show notes if you want to go and pick up a copy of this book yourself or even if you wanted to check out some of the other stuff uh, that he has written. Uh, we have some pretty exciting guests lined up. Next month, uh, I have um, on our podcast Dr. Michael Gorman uh, uh, about a re-release of a book he wrote called Cruciformity, which has spun off on a whole uh, series of other books um, that has really shaped uh, much of how we should and how we do understand uh, spiritual life and spiritual formation as a Christian. Well, I hope that this conversation has helped you in your life so that you can make a greater impact in your life. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next time.